are in precatory prayer or precatory psalms study that we've been doing. And we've been looking at these uh, psalms now for several months, going down through them. And we've skipped ahead from like Psalm, was it 95 we were in last time? And now we're in Psalm 137 because that's the next one that is classified as imprecatory. And if you're just joining us, imprecatory means to call down uh, a curse. That's sort of what the idea of the, the nature of the word itself in the context of the Bible, an imprecatory prayer is, or a song, or a, a psalm like this, uh, is one that calls for God's judgment, and it often is really just a reaffirming of what God has already promised, but it's in relation to judging the enemies of God's people. And so we see that, and we're going to read this one. This is a more famous psalm. Uh, it is a psalm that is quoted at Jewish weddings, and in the vow exchange between a husband and a wife. Um, most Jewish weddings, if they're traditional weddings, will include this psalm. It's also one that is included when they celebrate or commemorate the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. They will also often quote this, and it's done, parts of this psalm are quoted by, uh, even today, uh, sitting at a table at a Jewish household, when they give thanks, and they will quote from this psalm. So a very important psalm to the Jews, and I would say a very important psalm to all people who know the Lord, uh, because uh, this is one of those uh, psalms that reminds us of a great, really a very sad time in the life of a nation, uh, and it's about the captivity of Babylon and what took place there, and then when they came back. And the, this psalm was most likely written in many think that it was written probably by someone most likely a levite that would have come back out of exile and settled back in babylon and or not in babylon back in jerusalem when they began to come back to the land um in the septuagint it's it's actually subtitled um a psalm of jeremiah so uh, the jews back at least that time frame believed that jeremiah was the one that wrote it but it's very possible that someone else wrote it but quoted jeremiah or quoted parts of what jeremiah had said so it's hard to say for sure but it's not really the author of this is not so important because it's really god who's the author right and the human author i should say is not important and we're reminded of this so we're going to read down through this psalm psalm 137 and then we'll uh, talk about this tonight by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Lord, we thank you again uh, for your word. We ask you to open it to us tonight. And Lord, may we just 
rest secure in the fact that the judge of all the earth shall always do right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this psalm that we just read, and it's not a very long one, nine verses, uh, you have uh, five times total where you see the word remember or forget. Uh, Those words are used. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight because often um, songs, and in particular these psalms, all right, which were the Jewish hymn book, right, and are, um, they were songs of memory and songs that would bring back to mind some things that had happened. In this case, not a very happy event in the lives of the Jews. Uh, They had been taken captive by the Babylonians, and as we talked about that before, uh, there was a twofold reason why they were taken captive. Number one, to discipline a nation that had gone erring away from God. And you have that message like at the, you know, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah, for example, where he prophesies against his own people to repent. And they didn't repent. And so he said, if you don't repent, the Babylonians are going to come and this is what they're going to do. And they did. So God raised up a nation to come and to really judge Israel and provoke them hopefully back to a place of faith and fellowship with the Lord. And that historically is what happened. But it came at a great cost. It came at the cost of of people's uh, lives. And it came at the cost of being captured for those that did survive and being brought back to uh, a foreign uh, city where they wasn't their home. And it came at the cost of the destruction of their temple. Uh, the place of worship. And it came at a great, really, destruction to the name of God himself. And by the way, God is not worried about his reputation. And God will have the last say in all things. But at that time, and they allude to it here, when they were in that foreign land and they sat down by the rivers of Babylon and the guards of the Jews would come and say, sing us a song, sing us a song. They could not sing a song in a foreign land because their hearts were so heavy. And, and the reason they were being asked to sing was not because they wanted to be worshiping. It was just to mock God. And there was that that took place. But then there was also, um, it was really also going to teach the Babylonians a lesson as well. So the sovereign God of all things, the God of the universe, is at work and we don't always understand in, in the current time frame of where we are exactly how all that fits in place. But we do see through history and we also see through prophecy for future things how God will have his way regardless of what happens. But nevertheless, a very sad time in Israel. And this most likely, remember, a remnant returned. Uh, the final really destruction of jerusalem about 586 bc and uh, they knew that within that next generation about uh, 50 years would take place and 70 to accomplish it but that people would start coming back to the land and coming back to jerusalem you have the stories of that in nehemiah and ezra right and the rebuilding of um, of the city and the reestablishment of the jewish law and learning even their own language again those kind of things so lots of things there, but you notice um, the, the psalmist here was with a group of the exiles because he lumps himself in there with the pronoun we when he says in uh, verse 4, like how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So whoever wrote this had been part of that remnant 
and had been there in that former or in that land. And verse 1, the same thing. There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered. And the, the author here of this, the human author, uh, he was part of that group. And we see that term used. Well, let's talk about memory because um, that's what this song does. Um, first of all, and this is the outline to the chapter. We'll look at each one of these points tonight. Memory can open wounds. And, you know, sometimes there are things we'd rather forget, and that is true. I, I do say this, that there are lots of times that there are things that happen to us and we don't want to remember them. But the truth is that sometimes you need to open those wounds up to even get to them to heal, you know, a little bit and deal with them. If you don't deal with them, a lot of times they simmer there in the background and they do that. Um, it was uh, Albert Hubbard who said this, a retentive memory may be a good thing, but the ability to forget is the true token of greatness. And, and I think of that, if you can forget things, including injustices that have been done to you or to your people, uh, you're better for it in that way. Not necessarily that the situation becomes better. Again, there is something called justice in this world, and justice, of course, before the righteous judge um, that's yet future for many but anyways memory can open wounds and really you have here um, the Jewish exiles and they were really acting more like they were in a position of mourning or at a funeral and they're in a foreign land and they're sad and you can see that now the picture that opens up here that they were by the rivers of, of Babylon and in Babylon in ancient Babylon, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers merged, and it was there at the mouth of those rivers that Babylon, the city, was, was basically made and constructed. And it had all these elaborate canals that went out from there. And you've all heard about you know, the seven great wonders of the ancient world and the hanging gardens of Babylon. The Babylonians made a, uh, they brought water into the desert from those canals out of those rivers and they actually brought this lush green oasis that has had been really, well, it, was, it wasn't necessarily man-made, but it was constructed by man to have that water flow. And even in this great, beautiful city, a city of lush green and at the, really the bedrock of civilization and that fertile crescent they often talk about where there was lots of food and all that, the Jews were there and it wasn't their land and they were sad. They were reminded of that. And they were reminded that they, uh, it says here, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. They hung up their harps. In other words, they, they had, some of them had brought those harps and they were not going to play their harps. The sound of music was no longer. And I think that that would have been a very sad time. Uh, people had survived the journey back to being brought to Babylon and some of them had been able to bring possessions like musical instruments and uh, they did not use them during that time. They were near the water and many think that that was most likely uh, ritualistic in this that they the Jews like particularly on the Sabbath days and other times they would often gather uh, if they didn't have a synagogue or a place but they would gather by water um, there were ritual cleansings that went on, things like that. Some of that you may be seen even in the New Testament. For instance, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, verse 13, we have Paul, and he is at, uh, in Philippi, in Mesopotamia, in, uh, Mesopotamia, in, uh, in uh, 
Macedonia, thank you, I'm having a brain cramp there, uh, and he's in Philippi, and he goes to a place where prayers were made, and there are some people that are gathered there, one of them is, is Lydia, she becomes the first convert in, in Europe, uh, she's converted there, but she was of a, a Jewish background, and they're gathered there at the river to pray, interesting on the sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made we sat down and spoke to the women who met there and out of that there's a woman that gets saved her household and then you end up in that chapter a demon possessed slave girl gets released from that and she's saved and delivered and then you have the philippian jailer and you have that story and there's a lot that shadows really somewhat shadows some of the things that god did when he took Jews out of the place that they were, uh, well, that where they were comfortable and where they would call home, Jerusalem, Zion, and he scattered them. And he's continuing to use them. In this case, you have the Apostle Paul, uh, a Jew, and you also have Lydia and others that were gathered there for prayer. And to the Jews, and I think to to all of us, music is tremendously important. Mankind, um, humans are made with uh, really this ability to create music that's not just patterned music. You know, like birds have music, but it's patterned, right? It's instinctive. Uh, they can learn other songs and they can learn other things, but you don't usually have birds that just begin to develop new calls or whatever else. They, they usually learn it. Um, and, and other you know, creatures that would have some kind of sounds that would echo like a, a music, some, something like that. But man actually is able to, to, um, to sing and to formulate words and communicate through music. And ultimately, it's for the glory of God. Uh, that's why we were created, so that we might glorify God. And I tell you, uh, there's nothing more beautiful than when you hear some, uh, somebody or a group of people with, with instruments and with voice and everything harmonizing and it's just amazing and i wonder what heaven's going to be like when probably we're hopefully all singing on key and able to probably play musical instruments there in heaven i i'm not sure there were musical instruments in the ancient world and uh, some of those are mentioned actually psalm 81 says this sing aloud to god our strength make a joyful shout to the god of jacob raise a song and strike the timbrel and the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, and on our solemn feast day. And so you have a picture there for the Jews, a call of worship. And it involved music, it involved instruments, it involved uh, sounds of voices. All of that is there. And you know, it's really when we're pressed so often that the true song in our heart comes out, doesn't it? Uh, that song we sang, He Keeps Me Singing As I Go, by Luther Bridges. That came to him in his darkest hour, in the time of great grief, where in a, in a time of his life when things were going well, ministry was going well, he was actually at a series of uh, revival meetings they were holding. He was a Methodist preacher. And it was during that time that he received word that his wife and children had died in a house fire at his, his in-law's house. Uh, they were staying there in the care of the, of the in-laws while he was away. And he receives word his family has died in a fire. 
And how do you continue when you have something like that? Well, if you're a believer and your faith is in Christ, you say, Lord, you give me a song. And he did. Gave him a song. We're still singing it over a hundred years later. Job, the oldest book in the Bible. Job says this, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? And Job reminds us that God is the one who gives a song even in the darkest of dark times in the night. And we see that back to Acts 16. You remember Acts 16 when Paul is arrested and he's with Silas. They're thrown into the the Philippian jail and it's in the middle of the night that they're singing and people are hearing them. It says that Acts 16.25 But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. There is something very powerful when believers are praying and when they're singing. And the song is from a heart and the prayers are from their heart. But for the Jews in ancient Babylon, it wasn't such that they could, uh, no doubt they were gathering and they were worshiping. We know that because, for instance, Daniel, from his youth on into his older years, we see him customarily praying, don't we? Every day multiple times a day Um, he that was his habit that was his custom so jews were still exercising their their faith some of them some were not some were very much assimilating into the babylonian culture Um, no doubt they were singing and they were keeping their feasts as best they could but in this case the psalmist reminds them there was times when they were being mocked and people were coming and saying sing for us sing a new song and let us hear these songs of zion and the reality was this, they just wanted to mock what, what the Jews and basically were saying, your God lost and you're here because your God is weaker than the Babylonian gods. And of course that was not true, but it was the constant accusation that was going before them in that. And they refused to sing. And I think it reminds us that just it's important that you don't just, see the Babylonians wanted entertainment from the songs uh, doubtful that the babylonians even would have understood the psalms uh, these songs as they were sung in hebrew they would have just heard the noise of it and maybe they liked it or something like that but they wanted to be entertained but they really didn't want to worship and i think that probably speaks to uh, a lot of people today uh, they want to be entertained and would even gather as a church and be entertained but not really worship and jesus said that those that come to him we first of all must worship him in spirit and in truth i think that's important that we're worshiping from a right perspective a right heart um uh, you know sometimes i i imagine if you googled amazing grace we sang that song tonight you will find all kinds of artists out there who have recorded amazing grace and some of them the last thing on their mind in the life that they live is is anything to do with god's grace okay um but it's a popular song i'll record it and the masses will be entertained and there there are people out there probably sitting you know in very well dark circumstances listening to amazing grace and they're not just doing they're just doing it for entertainment purposes not really for the spiritual aspect of the song uh i i think and by the way uh and, and this is not really something i had put in here but there's a lot of different sounds of music out there and I think ultimately, no matter what instruments are used or uh, how things are sung or those kind of things, that 
they ought to be bringing glory to God. If they're not, uh, that's the issue, more than the sound we're comfortable with, right? I grew up in a certain era, uh, you, you know, all of us have, and we are comfortable with certain sounds of music, even in the cr- church, you know, we, we, we think this is the way music should be. And I think if we went back to Babylon or before Babylon and listened to the Jews sing, we'd be like, what is this? This isn't my music. You know, well, it is the music that was there. And they were using instruments that uh, uh, some would be probably not able to, to even play today, things like that. But uh, I, I look at that and say, well, it's to the glory of God. That was what um, uh, Bach said, you know, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, when he said this, I put it down here. He, he wrote this he, and translated, but he says, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music, but only a devilish hubbub. <laughs> and, and that's true. You know, We all like to make songs and sing, but if there's no aim of glorification of God, it's really just hubbub, right? It's not really lasting. And of course... In all his compositions, uh, he began them with the initials J.J. and in Latin, Yesu, Yuva, right, which is Jesus, help me. And he always ended them um, with uh, sol, uh, so, yeah, Sola Dia Gratia, right, which is to God be the praise, God alone be the praise. And that, like, sort of summed up the compositions of Bach. And by the way, I'm not saying you only can listen to classical music and say that that's spiritual music. But there was an element that it was, a, it was the chief end of the, the, the music was to glorify God. And I think whatever it is, if it's a country and western song, you know, sounding, uh, uh, a contemporary Christian, you know, something like that, it ought to be for the glory of God. And whatever classification it finds itself in, in genre. Anyways, Jesus said this, he said, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And that verse would have been very, um, would have been apt for those people in Babylon, because had they just begun to sing their songs of Zion, it would have been like throwing that which is holy before dogs and just having swine trample them uh, underfoot and tear them to pieces. But sometimes it's important to look back and to remember. And sometimes those memories are hard and they open up wounds. But they're important. For the Jew, it was important that they remembered that at one time they had been in Babylon in exile. And that it's better to uh, be in the land in obedience to God than exiled out to a foreign land and having to repent there and it's important that we do that i think of some of the dark times in our world history if you were to go into poland today and visit the site of the concentration camp at treblinka where about a million almost a million jews were killed systematically using six gas chambers that were there at that compound and by the train loads they they brought people in the Nazis did, and they just went and killed them. You know, the final solution in doing that. Um, that was about a sixth of the Jews that were killed in the Holocaust were killed at Treblinka. And most of Treblinka is now just field, and there's like, you know, uh, some ruins that are there. 
And there is this very simple monument written in several different languages that just says, never again, never again. And it is a solemn reminder as those holo- some Holocaust survivors that there are very few today in our world because you know death is catching up with them. Uh, as they pass off the scene, uh, there is still this push to not ever forget what took place uh, in that time, a very awful time. And I, tr- I pray it provokes people to faith, not just a remembrance of pain. Because that's the way the Lord is. He wants to heal our broken hearts, right? Psalm 147, verse 3, He heals the brokenhearted. He binds and binds up their wounds. That's messianic in nature. Because that, that tells us that's what the Lord is going to be like. In Luke chapter 4, the fulfillment of that prophecy occurred when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and he reads this the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and by the way he stopped reading there and he said this day this scripture is fulfilled in your ears Think about that. Imagine being in synagogue that day and all of a sudden the Messiah himself reads scripture that had been prophesied all those years before and today it was fulfilled. Wow, important. But it speaks to who he is and what he's like. He heals the brokenhearted if you'll let him. Well, it's uh, like I said, it can be tragic if we just use um, music as a way of entertainment um, like the world does and it ought to always be something that honors the Lord right and memory can build character that's the next point can build character verses 5 and 6 says if I forget you O Jerusalem let my right hand forget its skill if I do not remember you let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy now, one of the things I've noticed in these psalms, as we've gone through these imprecatory psalms, a lot of the time, the, the imprecatory part is just a few verses. And a lot of it deals with either uh, setting the stage for why that uh, prayer is being made, or in this case, these two verses that are found here, it's really an introflection of looking like inward in the heart of the psalmist. And the psalmist stops in the middle of all this, and he says, Lord, this terrible, awful thing has happened in the past, but, but help me to not forget. Help me to keep my vows. And one of the things that these psalms ought to always do for us as we read through them is, first of all, help us examine ourselves in the light of a holy God. Uh, and the psalmist does that. He can't get too far when he says, If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And in, in other words, he says, Let my tongue just be stopped. Probably that should be a good prayer for some of us. And I can tell you there are times I, I say, Oh Lord, keep my tongue. Help me to, to do what I'm supposed to do. Lord, you called me to preach the word of God. Help me to preach the word of God and help me to keep that message because there's a lot of other messages that, are, that the world wants to hear and they don't want to necessarily hear this one, but Lord, keep that. And then you could say, um, let my right hand forget its skill. In other words, it's cut my arm off. 
if I don't work for you, Lord? And hey, you know, those are things, right, that we have to consider. I think sometimes you only come to appreciate the things that God has given you when they're gone. Uh, I don't know why it's human nature that way, but it is. It's sometimes with that with people. I think of what I had in my grandparents. I don't have them around anymore. I wish I did. And at the time, I took them for granted so often. And now I appreciate them so much more. They're, not, they're out of my sight. Uh, for the Jews, they began to appreciate what they had in Zion. But when they were there, they didn't. When they were there, they were worshiping idols. And they were doing things that were, well, contrary to God's law. And they had forgotten God's law. God took it all away from them. Allowed it to be stripped from them. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think it's important that as, as Christians, when we begin our day, we say, Lord, I've got another day to serve you. And this might be my last day. This, no, there's no guarantees that you'll see the end of any day. Except... If you're a believer in the presence of God, right? We know that. But are you serving him today? Is that what is on your heart? Are you gaining wisdom or just becoming more foolish? Psalm 66 verse 13 says, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. There the psalmist says, Lord, I'm going to do and commit again to pay what I vowed. I think it's important that we do those regularly and we we do that. Well, memory can open wounds. Memory can build character. Memory can encourage faith. And that's where he goes with this. It can encourage faith in this. In the justice of God... God is reminding his people that he is the one who is in control of all things. And he's reliable and we can trust him. Even when the world is falling apart, we still can trust him. And I'm glad we can do that. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, the writer there says in verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth... Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Then he says, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are being shaken as of of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And many believe that the book of Hebrews, the dating of the book of Hebrews is written prior to the destruction of the, Jeru- the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. So the writer here is reminding people there are things made with hands that will be removed soon. And that was prophetic because in 70 AD the temple is destroyed again and it still hasn't been rebuilt. But he says, reminds them that there's even a worse shaking coming for the earth 
the whole heavens and the earth will shake at his coming and the judgment that awaits the earth. And he reminds people to be ready and to look and to basically stir up faith. And that whole section of Hebrews 11, 12 into 13 is the aspect of how what we believe turns into faith in how we live. And so those chapters deal with that. And uh, good theology brings about hopefully good living, right? And in all of that. Anyways, we get to the imprecatory part of the psalm, and it's this. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed? Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now, I have to just say this. This is a very uncomfortable sort of song and prayer because it pictures for us a judgment on Edom. Now, remember, Edom was the, were the descendants of Esau, right? And you have the struggle of Jacob and Esau. And one of the things that happened not only with Esau in Jacob's lifetime, they were brothers. Um, Esau hated Jacob, all right? And his descendants also, even though they were related, they did great harm to the descendants of Jacob. And so Edom was, God prophesied against Edom and said, you're going to be judged for that. And here the psalmist reminds us and those that would be singing this, of what God has already said. Previous to this, God had said, he's going to judge Edom. And he says, God, you keep your word. And I don't think that's improper at all, because we see the pattern in Scripture. To go before God and say, God, keep your word. God, you told us that you would have the last say, and you would judge the earth, and oh, Lord, uh, you do that. Now, thankfully, he's going to do it in his time, not my time. But I don't think that's wrong at all. Because when we pray, we come in alignment with God's will. That's what prayer does. We come and we, we pray, not my will be done, but your will be done. right? And so when the psalmist comes and he prays for judgment on the, these ones, um, he's making a statement. And he's also reminding those that were seeing this of exactly what took place to the Jews. When the Babylonians came in, they not only ransacked Jerusalem and took the Jews captive, but they went much further than that, and they killed people. They, uh, history tells us that when they conquered Jerusalem, finally, they first of all had starved people into submission. It was an awful time. But for those that remained, they ended up slaughtering many of them, especially the men that would have been of fighting age. And they also um, you know, uh, did terrible things to the women, and they took the little ones, the babies that probably wouldn't have been able to survive the journey back to uh, Babylon, and they dashed them against the rocks, threw them over the walls. They did that kind of stuff. Uh, that's not a pretty picture. And Scripture uh, talks about that in all, in Isaiah and also in Jeremiah. But when we think of that, the psalmist says, "Happy is the one that does that back to you." And that's the imprecatory part. And you say, that's not a very Christian attitude. But it's a judicial attitude is what it is. I say that because um, what we're looking at here is a national call, not an individual call for 
revenge, but retribution is the term that is used. And it's actually the basis of Western law, um, which comes out of the Judeo law or the Jewish law out of Deuteronomy. And it teaches us that, you know, the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And it's called the law of retribution. The legal term is lex talionis. And it's, it's still seen today, although it's weakened today. Because up until really most modern times in the West, uh, there was the law of punishment, which falls under that lex um, uh, talionis. And it basically said this, that the punishment fits the crime. So if you killed somebody and you maliciously murdered somebody, all right, you went to, then you should face the death penalty. Why? Because it actually saves lives. It doesn't save the life of the perpetrator or the victim, but it tells society that the punishment will be such that if you commit a crime of this nature, your life will be taken. And that would be like the ultimate form. But it may be something as simple as this, like you steal something from somebody and you have to pay that value back all right um or if you and it was to be always done uh, judiciously but also in western civilization and in, in american history especially uh in by a, a, a means by where that there was also grace extended in certain circumstances it wasn't just a cut and dry thing but it's called the law of retribution and it is the punishment meets the crime. And essentially, that's what the psalmist is calling for on the enemies of his nation. And he's saying, may you find that retribution as what you did to us comes back and pays you in full. About 20 years after this psalm was written, Babylon fell. And it fell horrendously when the Persians came in and conquered it. And interestingly enough the Persians did a lot of the same things the Babylonians did in killing the Babylonian young people, uh, young children, and, and uh, taking their women and doing terrible things to uh, people and slaughtering them. And by the way, that was the ancient rite, it seemed like. And many of the ancient civilizations did that. God did call his people to live on a higher plane. And uh, it was something that over and over again, he reminded uh, all of us on that. And when you come to, to the New Testament, um, individually we're told to pray for our enemies and to do good to those who persecute you, those kind of things. But from the national perspective, we still have that, I believe, the basis of law, which is the law of retribution. And for instance, we see that still enacted today. Uh, back in early 2019, uh, there was um, the United States sent uh, Delta Force operatives into Syria to kill al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS. And they actually had found out where he was, went in, um, assaulted his compound, and then went in, and they uh, blew holes in the wall, and they chased him into some tunnels down underneath this complex. And they, uh, well, he actually blew himself up along with three children that were with him. And it's that way al-Baghdadi met his end. But if you knew anything about ISIS, they were absolutely horrendous, weren't they? They would take people and slaughter them, cut their heads off, um, raping and pillaging as they went. And the operation that killed al-Baghdadi was Operation Kayla Mueller. Kayla Mueller was a young woman 
26 years old. She was a humanitarian aid worker in Syria. And in 2011, 2012, whatever, she was taken and kidnapped. She was eventually sold as a slave to al-Baghdadi, and she became one of his concubines, a wife um, as such. She was eventually killed by him. And in retribution to what had occurred under ISIS, they named that operation Operation Kayla Mueller because the U.S. said, we're going to do what you did to us, you know, in that way. So that's sort of that aspect of how you can justify this language and the psalm and understand that there is a place for that. If there wasn't, there wouldn't be civilization. You would have things like the, the, the terrible things that took place in World War II um, would continue. The Holocaust, or uh, I'm reading a book called Voices of the Pacific, which is the campaign of the Marines that when they went from... Um, Guadalcanal, all through those those islands of the Pacific, and some of the things that they endured. Oh man, and the horrendous things they saw at the hands of the Japanese soldiers. The Japanese soldiers were fanatical, and they did terrible things that Americans weren't used to. Um, and when in 1945, in August of 1945, the U.S. bombed Hiroshima, and Tens of thousands of people were killed. Today, many look back and say that was not called for. But to understand that that actually probably saved lives. I'll say it probably saved my life. Um, Saved my life because my grandfather, Joe Karen, was on his way on a transport ship to go to from the European theater of combat to the Pacific theater of combat. And he was going there for the invasion of Japan. And they estimated that there would be 150,000 Americans die in the invasion of Japan on the ground war. My grandfather probably would have been one of those. I have a picture shortly after World War II when he was a young game warden. He's the one second, the second one in right here. Uh, That's Joe Karen. But you know, there was another Karen. Another Karen, a distant cousin, George Robert Karen. Uh, he was Bob Karen. He was the tail gunner on the Enola Gay. The Enola Gay was the bomber that um, dropped the first atomic bomb in use in combat uh, on Hiroshima. And that Karen was involved in that. He's the actual the one that took the picture, the famous picture of that. And it left utter destruction, terrible things. And I, I, I don't want to see this. You know, see a city filled with people that was much of it demolished and yet if you know what was going on prior to all this and what the Japanese had done to their enemies and their lands they conquered it was far worse far worse and I just say this that if there weren't people who were willing to go and enact justice of retribution nationally Probably most of us wouldn't be here. And so I just say that there is a place for that. There really is. Um, For us, I always say this, you pray for peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? Pray for peace with other people. We're called called to to do that here in, you know, for, for all people, that we might live peaceably with them. But when it comes to nations and governments and civility, uh, there has to be some form of punishment to meet crime and 
atrocities and those kind of things. By the way, Truman gave the order to destroy or drop a bomb on Hiroshima after he had toured um, some of the cities in Germany that had been destroyed. And he was greatly moved by what he had seen in the destruction of that, did not want to do this to Japan, but felt it was the only recourse that would end the war and that it would ultimately save people's lives in doing so. This doesn't have much to do necessarily with Psalm 137, other than to say when you come to those uh, verses that are pretty hard like that, don't just write them off, because there are reasons why God has those in the Scripture. And um, may he give us wisdom in these days, right? And may we live for him. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm thankful also that you are the one that will have the last say. Whether man uh, bends their knee here or they bend their knee before you in judgment, oh Lord, you are the one who is exalted. And Lord, we would pray to this end that people would repent and turn and cultures would change and death and destruction would be something, Lord, that wouldn't be on the horizon or in our world today. But nevertheless, we know where sin is, Lord, there is great evil. Thank you for those who are willing to meet it and defend against it. Thankful, Lord, also for you who came and brought peace between God and man and that we have a way out. So we do pray, Lord, for our leaders. We pray for our country. We pray for um, our world today that there's so much, many, many things going on. And... We pray somehow Christ might be exalted. People would embrace the Prince of Peace and uh, many would be saved. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.